0: Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. The Covenant Podcast is on the Man of God Network, and the Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Adventist perspective. We're so thankful that you continue to listen to the show, and at least as one of the co-hosts, I think I can say that uh, as I speak for us, we think it has been long, far too long, since we have... Uh, talked about, John Calvin, or since we've spoken with Rexford Simrod. uh, brother, this is not your first time on the show. I believe the first time you came on the Covenant podcast, if my memory is not mistaken, is 2019, uh, maybe early 2020. And you've been on uh, at least more than once, but for our listeners uh, who haven't uh, listened to all of our shows and for those that don't know you, first of all, welcome back. And can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself before we uh, talk about our subject?
1: Yeah, it's good to be here again with you, Um, Austin. I am the Dean of Students and Director of Administration for Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. I've uh, been in this role for a little over seven years now. Um, I'm married to... uh, most wonderful woman in the world as far as I'm concerned, Marion, and we have eight children, the youngest is nine, the oldest is 32, um, and, you know, I'm, I'm here to talk about John Calvin, but I want to make clear I'm, I'm not a Calvin scholar, it's just that my favorite author, uh, other than a strict theologian, is J. H. who's who wrote The uh, Reformation in Europe in the Time of Calvin, which has an abundance of information about John Calvin that you don't find in other places. And I've read it and reread it more times than I can count, and it's uh, something I'm passionate about.
2: Rex, I was just wondering if you could kick off our conversation on John Calvin by talking about some of the common misconceptions about John Calvin. Um, In your estimation, is John Calvin someone who is often misrepresented? And uh, if so, can you talk about this and uh, explain your reasoning why you think he is?
1: Well, there, (laughs) I guess there are a lot of misconceptions about john calvin some out of pure ignorance others more out of simply that a lot of information about him isn't as widely disseminated as i'd like it to be but i've i've made a short list of some of the most what i think the most common misconceptions about calvin and the first one would be that calvin was a tyrant who ro- ruled over geneva and the church of geneva with an iron fist i mean almost Almost any time you hear somebody talking about Calvin and they start out saying Calvin's Geneva, I cringe because it was not Calvin's Geneva. In fact, Calvin was never in his entire life comfortable there. He felt compelled um, that God had called him there, and so he was determined to be a faithful minister, but he was never comfortable. When, he had, when the city of Geneva was trying to talk him into returning two years after they had booted him out, he wrote to a friend, I had rather die a hundred times elsewhere than place myself on that cross on which I should have to bear death a thousand times a day. So, and here's the thing. If you study the history of Geneva, the Huguenots, are really defined by one thing above all others, and that was they refused to be ruled over by any man. The the beginning of the Reformation in Geneva, it started out with them throwing off the shackles of Roman despotism, and there was no way they were going to replace that with the tyranny of a single man. And even at the height of what we could call Calvin's power or influence in Geneva. The the government Geneva was ruled by four syndics who were elected yearly. And these, a syndic was if you, maybe if you think in your mind, take the office of a mayor, uh, a judge and a sheriff and put them all into one. And these four syndics each year would, would have that power. And anything that Calvin wanted to institute in the church, he had to go through them. It was they were the ones who actually made the rules um, by which the church and the city needed to live by. And so, one, one of the uh, clearest examples is the Lord's Supper. When he came back, he said, "I think that the Lord's Supper should be practiced weekly." but I'm willing to compromise. And I'd like us to institute it on a monthly basis. And the syndics refused and said, no, it's quarterly. That's all you're gonna ever gonna get. And so, and the other thing about the syndics, they're elected annually and you've got, always had two parties in, in Geneva, the Huguenots who were really the great defenders of liberty and as the Reformation continued, they were the ones who had become very evangelical, but there were always um, those who were against Calvin and yearly the, the the makeup would change. It was never all Huguenots and sometimes it would be almost all of his enemies and he would tr- have trouble getting them to go along with anything that he wanted. Um, so that's that's the first he, he was not a tyrant ruling over geneva he was trying to pastor the church faithfully but he couldn't institute anything without the approval of the government of geneva uh second it's more common with people who really are not familiar with calvinism but some people think that calvin wrote the five points of calvinism and that's that's not true at all the, the five points of calvinism actually came from a group called the remonstrance and these were followers of arminius who i believe is shortly after arminius's death they wrote these five points in which they disagreed with the calvinism um, that they were in and then the Synod of dort was held to contradict those five points so you know, the five points of calvinism actually are five refutations of the five points of the remonstrance so calvin's not responsible Uh, he if if you had gone to calvin and asked him about the third point of calvinism he would have had no idea what you're talking about um tied into that is there are a lot of people who think calvin did not believe in limited atonement and this is it's understandable that people would think this because he, he never taught it explicitly. It wasn't an issue that the church was mulling over at the time. It really didn't come into focus until their monstrance argued specifically against it. And what uh, one of the things that people try to bring forth to supposedly prove that he didn't believe in limited atonement is that Calvin was always a strong defender of the free and well-meant offer of the gospel. In his commentaries, uh, other in his sermons, he believed firmly in the free offer of the gospel, and there are those who just don't think that that's compatible with limited atonement. So they think when they bring show these arguments from Calvin, it proves that he did not believe in limited atonement. But I, I think the nail in the coffin to the idea that he didn't believe in it is in one of his correspondence letters. Somewhat he was he was arguing for closed communion. A form of chorus communion and his one of the things he said is how can we give the lord's table to someone for whom christ did not die and so that the he may not have argued explicitly for it but the seeds of it are there and, and i mean if there's somebody who christ didn't die for he's obviously holding some form of limited atonement um Another idea is, and this is this was pushed by the Romanists in his day, uh, that the idea that Calvin was proud and was always seeking to make a name for himself, and this is so preposterous if you study the life of Calvin. What shortly after his conversion, people recognized in him. This ability to preach and communicate the truth of Scripture in a way far beyond anything they'd experienced, and so he was always surrounded by people asking him, "Come teach to us." And he would say to them, "I," he said, "I'm I'm I'm but a poor recruit, and you address me as though I were a, a general." And when they pressed him more, he quoted um, Saint uh, Chrysostom, saying, "Though a thousand person persons should call you." Think of your own weakness and obey only under constraint, to which they answered, well, then we constrain you. <laughs> uh, and another, another interesting, there was, I think, early in Calvin's life, he did have somewhat of uh desire to be more well known. You know, the first thing he wrote was actually a commentary on Seneca's clemency. He he wrote this, I believe, when he was studying law. and when he when that was published, he was very eager to see it used in different um, uh, schools and universities as a textbook. It, it was he was very anxious about how well it would be received. But not long after that, when he publishes the Institutes of the Christian, uh, there's none of that. He, he basically he he just he puts it out there and as to how well it's going to be received he he doesn't seem concerned but the amazing thing is it was so well received every reformer in europe just devoured it i I think it, it had been less than a year since he wrote it when he arrived in geneva and pharrell had already um read it and was was so taken with how how well it was that's why he demanded calvin stay and help him there in geneva um the an- another one that I I hear quite often is that Calvin held still held a remnant of Platonism and this stems usually I hear this when someone is talking about you know the the true blessed state of of the redeemed will be their glorified state in which their Body and soul are reunited. The the state of the saints in heaven and as disembodied disembodied spirits is not complete. They're still yearning for the full redemption of their bodies and souls together. And people will bring up the quote from Calvin. I believe it's in his Institutes. He says, "When the soul is freed from the prison house of the body," and that sounds a lot like the platonist idea. That the the body isn't the, the true the true essence of humanity is just his soul. That the body is this is just this prison house that we're waiting to get rid of. Well, I I really think I don't I don't think Calvin is imbibing that Platonic idea. But when you read about the horrendous state of 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 Calvin's health, he had asthma. He suffered from migraines, ulcerated hemorrhoids, stomach ulcers, gout, kidney stones. The and and he kept serving through all this. He, he, he could barely walk and he'd still go preach as though nothing was going on. But when you when you recognize <laughs> what what his body was doing to him, I, I think we can understand him thinking of it as a prison house. <laughs> <laughs> and, and still looking forward to the glorification of that body not not call him a platonist because of it another one that uh i don't i think it's people are recognizing now that it's nobody's pushing for it anymore but a couple years ago when Thomism really started exploding on social media and stuff there's there is this effort among some cage-stage Thomists, as I'll refer to them, who basically try to make out that all the reformers and the Puritans, everyone pre-enlightenment, was a Thomist, and and I, I think that's been sufficiently refuted. I don't want to go into all of it right now. There are some things on our blog you can read that that show that that's not true. But the, the reason I bring it up is because. There's an interesting thing we find in Merle d'Avigny about Calvin before he was converted. When when he was a young man, his father wanted him to, wanted him to um, enter, become a priest and had high hopes for him. There are there many who thought he'd even reach Cardinal. Um, but uh, in that pre-converted state, when he was still a great adherence to Rome, um, he writes, he applied to the study of theology and, strange to say, was enraptured with Scotus, Bonaventure, and Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas had an especial charm for him. If Calvin had not be- been a reformer, he would have become a Thomist. Schoolers, schol- scholastics appeared to him the queen of sciences, but he adds, but he was the impassioned lover at first only that he might afterwards become its terrible adversary so i just i just find that interesting pre-conversion time he was he was leaning towards Thomism, and had but when then you come when he writes the institutes he never even quotes him favorably he's full of quotes from other fathers special augustine but he does not bring in thomas at all um one that i'm just going to bring up because we'd have to have another episode on it but calvin burned servetus that's that's something that ignorant armenians like to throw in our faces uh, i think we should have an episode where we really discuss what actually went on there he would have been burned anywhere he was found in all of europe and 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 the roman catholic church had already burned him in effigy he he had escaped before they could actually kill him um, but they burned him in effigy, and if, had they ever caught him, he would have been burned there as well. And then the last, lastly, uh, the idea that Calvin was an argumentative and unfriendly man. And, you know, interesting, I, I, would, I don't think there's a lot in Calvin that could lead anyone. If you're just reading Calvin, you wouldn't think that. I think this actually stems from most cage-stage Calvinists are argumentative and unfriendly. <laughs> so so people assume Calvin must have been that way. Um the, the fact of the matter is he made dear friends everywhere he went and he continued with intimate correspondence with all of them for the rest of his life. Uh one of the interesting friendships that he had that a uh, few people are aware of is Melanchthon. You know, Melanchthon is, you know, the the moderate reformer who uh you know is well known for being Luther's uh right hand man when calvin when calvin was booted out of geneva he went to strasbourg and the his primary duty there was he pastored a church of fifteen thousand french refugees but the strasbourg doctors bucer and capetto at that time there, there was a, uh, reformers. The, the German reformers were having a lot of meetings uh, with Romanists, with the Roman Catholic Church to try to achieve some reformation in the Roman Catholic Church without actually leaving it. And the Strasburgers sent Calvin there and he basically served as the one who kept them from compromising too much. But in the midst of that, he became very good friends with Melanchthon, and it's interesting when you watch when Melanchthon and Calvin are together. Melanchthon basically becomes a Calvinist, and then the far the longer they're apart from each other, the more he starts compromising again. And then, but when he's with when he's with Calvin, he turns he 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 turns right back into a Calvinist. So that's interesting. Um, you know, he always refused to compromise compromise truth, but. He was also, when he was, when, okay, when he's dealing with Romanus, he, he stands for the truth and will not compromise. But when he comes to deal with the reformers amongst themselves, he was a peacemaker beyond all others. He just he had this way to help, he'd, he'd recognize the truths on both sides and help both sides to see what the other was saying. And and had this way of when when passions were really heated, he he had a way of pointing them to the truth in such a way that they they became friendly. Um, but it is interesting, you know, to him the idea that he's argumentative. He, when he ended up arguing with Romanists, he would shut their mouths. Uh, some of the things were said of him. Nobody can withstand him when he has a Bible in his hand. And, you know, he may not, he, he wasn't the advocate of the five points of Calvinism, but when Sola Scriptura, that, that was every dispute. It had to be settled by the word of God. And uh, an interesting, another, when uh, some Romanists had lost a debate with uh, Calvin and Pharrell, they said Hercules himself could do nothing against those two speaking of Calvin and Pharrell when they were together. So uh, those, those are some general misconceptions about Calvin that, uh, I I think it's important for people to understand the truth about.
0: Yeah. Thank you for all of those. Those were really helpful. And, uh, at least one lesson that we can glean from that is that, uh, Calvin is often misunderstood. So thank you for, uh, Clearing up some common misconceptions about John Calvin, but to uh, continue our conversation in the last uh, sub-point I believe that you are making, you mentioned that uh, Calvin often stopped the mouths of Romanists or uh, Papists at this time. So uh, can you give us an example of this?
1: Yeah, I've I've got one excellent example. This was October of 1536 calvin calvin did not yet have a position in the church in geneva he had arrived pharrell had talked him into staying and at that point in time he had just been the the syndics. i think uh, they didn't even name him in in the minutes they said this frenchman that pharrell has has brought here has become a reader in the church and what a reader meant was he would basically preach sermons on a regular basis in one of the, in the cathedral. But so he had not even been in Geneva long; he wasn't, uh, you know, he wasn't even a, past, a pastor yet. But Geneva's Geneva had two prime um, uh, Swiss cantons that they had um, treaties with. And one of them was Freeburg and the other was Bern. And Bern, the, the alliance with Bern basically, they tore it up after Geneva embraced the Reformation. But Bern, because Freeburg was a Roman Catholic Canton, Bern was a reformed Canton. They had embraced the Reformation. And uh, at this point in time, they had recently um, they had acquired some. Territories from some battles they fought. And just let, I'll, I'll read, they, they proclaimed an edict that I'll, I'll just read it to you. We desire that the people of our territories, which by the grace of God we have justly acquired by conquest, should walk with all their hearts in the way which the Lord has commanded. Nevertheless, that has not been done, and even gross insults have been offered to the preachers and to those who wish to follow the gospel desirous of putting in order all these confused affairs we enjoin all priests and monks as well as preachers to present themselves in lausanne i think lausanne lausanne i think it's pronounced maybe on october 1st next for the purpose of proving what they believe freely and frankly by arguments on the grounds of holy scripture you see, all, in all these things, Sola Scriptura is always foremost. We address this appeal not only to those of our own territories, but to all comers and goers of whatsoever nation they be, and we promise them safekeeping. We further order that our priests and preachers attend the assembly from its opening to its close without default under pains of our indignation. So they called this disputation, and you'll notice they, they left it open not simply for the Roman Catholics in Lausanne, but they, they wanted them to be free to call their doctors and their best defenders from all over Europe to come and defend their um, their views. So, Pharrell and Calvin, or Pharrell and Veret and, and Calvin went, they were the one, but Calvin and Veret were the the ones who were officially defending the reformed view. And the uh, they began, and they had th- this, what I want to talk about is on the fourth day. So they'd already had uh, three full days of the Roman Catholics putting forward their points of view and Pharrell would just tear them apart piece by piece. Pharrell always had scriptural arguments that that were clear and, but uh, it's the fourth day that in particular, one of the Romanists came and that day they were arguing for the mass and the real presence, the bodily presence of Christ in the mass, and he had had thirteen heads defending the mass and the real presence. And Pharrell replied to all 13 points without omitting any of them. But one of the arguments that the Romanists had made was particularly troubling to Calvin. He had said, do you pretend to be wiser and more enlightened by the Holy Spirit than the holy doctors, St. Augustine, St. Jerome, St. Ambrose, and St. Gregory, who all believed in the real presence? If If you reject them as unlearned, it is merely because you are that they are posed to you. So for four days, Calvin had sat there without speaking, contenting himself just to be a hearer. But Davenier says Ambrose, Augustine, and those other doctors, he knew them by heart, and they were his friends, and he could not stand to see them insulted by being ranked with the Pope's army. And so Calvin then speaks. He says, and this is one of the my favorite things about reading Merle d'Avigné. He's actually got the words of the reformers in so many places. You you get to hear what the evangelists actually preached when they went to Geneva and what Calvin actually um, argued here. He said, I've abstained t- from speaking until this moment. And it was my intention to abstain to the end, perceiving that any speech of mine was unnecessary because my brethren Pharrell and Varey have made sufficient reply but the reproach which you have uttered against us with regard to the ancient doctors compels me to show again briefly how grievously you err in accusing on this point we despise them and reject them altogether you say and that because we find them opposed to our cause verily all the world we own might esteem us not only rash men but arrogant beyond measure if we had held in derision such servants of God and considered them asses as you say we do. Those who make pretense of holding them in great reverence frequently honor them less than we do and would not deign to employ in reading their works the time which we gladly devote to it. But we do not exalt their authority to such a height as to allow it to lessen the dignity of the word of God in which exclusively entire obedience ought to be given in the church of christ we should fear being found rebels against the word of the lord which asks whether his people ought to be content with his voice which adds without hearing either the living or the dead yes we do not rest yes we do rest in the sacred word and are fastened on it have fastened on it all our hearts and understandings our eyes our ears without turning aside from the right or to the left If anyone speaks, says Peter, let him speak as the oracles of God. We therefore teach the people of Jesus, not human doctrines, but heavenly wisdom. With the ancient doctors, we seek for God's truth. With them, we listen to it and keep it with all reverence, reserving to the Lord this glory that his mouth alone be opened in the church to speak with authority. Let Let every ear then hear him and let every soul be ready to obey him. As to your assertion that we despise the fathers because they are not on our side, it would be easy for me to show that whatever matters are in controversy between us, the assertion is no more true than your reproach. But to confine myself to the subject before us, I will lay before you only a small number of passages of such a character that there will be nothing left for you to reply to. And Calvin didn't have any of these books before him. He knew them by heart. It starts out, Tertullian. When Refuting Marcion speaks, Christ in the supper was left, has left a figure of his body. The author of the commentary on St. Matthew contained in the works of Chrysostom says, It is far greater offense to defile ourselves who are true vessels in which God dwells than to profane the vessels in which the supper is administered since the real body of Jesus Christ is not contained in them but only the mystery of his body. St. Augustine, in his 23rd epistle, says, The bread and the wine, which are sacraments of the body and blood of Christ, we call them in a certain sense, his body and his blood. And in his book against Adamantus, he adds, The Lord will not hesitate to say, This is my body, when he gave the sign of his body. Weigh all these words. In any way, favor your error. When you taunt us with the charge that the ancients are against us, everybody sees your rashness. Assuredly, if you had read only a few passages or pages, you would not have been so bold. But you have not even seen the covering of the book. The foregoing testimonies, which may easily be pointed out, prove it. And he went on to make a couple additional arguments of his own against the real presence in the mass and that but then he can he concluded with these words no it is neither the natural natural body nor the natural blood of our lord jesus which is given us in the holy supper but there is a spiritual communication by which by virtue of which he gives to us all the grace that we can receive from his body and his blood christ makes us truly participants but altogether in a spiritual way by the bond of his Holy Spirit. St. Luke and St. Paul write that Jesus said, This is the new testament in my blood. That is to say, the new alliance which the Father has made with us, blotting out our iniquities by his mercy, receiving us into his favor, that we may be his children and writing his law on our hearts by his spirit. All alliance really new and ratified and confirmed by the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Constrained by reason so forcible we interpret scripture according to the true analogy of faith, but we do not we do not put glosses on it of our own heads, and we give no explanation which is not expressed in itself. Then Calvin was silent. But the interesting thing is the Romanists who had been so eagerly, eagerly trying to refute Pharrell and Varey all the way through sat silent as well. Amen. And Merle d'Avigné writes, the papists who had been forcefully disputing with Pharrell for days remained silent without making any attempt to reply. Now, here's here's my favorite part. A lot of people today say debates are useless. No one, ever, no one has ever changed their minds from before debate to afterwards. But there's a Franciscan monk there who notes the silence of the Romanists after Calvin finishes. And, uh, and, and he stood up. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and read read that this is what he stood up and said. And he had been there for the entire uh, disputation. He stands and says, Holy Scripture teaches us that there is no remission for the sin against the Holy Ghost. Now, this sin is that men who, through unbelief, willing to contend against the clearest truth, choose rather to exalt themselves against God and his word than to humble themselves and obey him. As I desire now not to resist the truth, but to receive it and confess it openly, I acknowledge before you all that I have been long mistaken. While I thought that I was living in the state of perfection, as they had given me to understand, I have been, on the contrary, only the servant of men, submitting myself to their traditions and commandments. Nothing is good but that which God commands. I have heard the truth. I see that I must hold fast to Jesus alone, must stand in his word, and must have no other head, leader, or savior, but him who by his sacrifice has made us acceptable to the Father. I will henceforth live and die according to the gospel. I ask forgiveness of God for all that I have done and said against his honor. I ask pardon of you and of all the people so far as my preaching or my life I have taught you amiss or have given you a bad example. And since by following the rule of the Cordeliers and assuming the garb of dissimulation, I have been led out of the right way, at this moment in which I renounce all superstition, I abandon also the garb full of all hypocrisy and and trumpery. And so he takes off his monastic robes, and then continues, let no one be offended, But let each examine himself and confess that if the state in which he has lived be contrary to the will of God, he ought not to persevere in it, nor to re-enter after quitting it. I will live as a Christian and not as a courtier, according to the gospel of Jesus Christ and not according to the rule of the monks, in true and living faith in Christ and united with all true Christians. To this God calls us all to the intent that instead of being divided into so many rules, we may be all one in Jesus Christ. And he was not the only convert. There were a number of peop- of, of priests and monks who had gone to this dissertation full of zeal for the Roman Catholic Church who left, uh, setting it all aside for the living faith in Jesus Christ.
2: Well, you've given us an excellent story, about how Calvin stopped the mouths of the Romanists. Um, so thank you for that insight to Calvin as an apologist. But um, can you also give us a story or an example of John Calvin as a peacemaker amongst the Reformed in his day? Uh, do you have any story about this?
1: His day. Yeah, there's there's one really beautiful example that uh, I think is, uh, I don't think a lot of people know about. But it's, it's just a, it's a glorious example of how the Lord used Calvin to bring peace among the Reformed. Um, this is later, but not, it's, it's September 1537. And, you know, we're all familiar with uh, how Zwingli and um, Luther had met and tried to establish peace between themselves so that they could present a united front against the Roman Catholic Church. And, how they had failed basically because of lutheran's luther's stubborn nature <laughs> um, but uh this was later when the the reformers in the area of of switzerland had again they were feeling the the weakness that was caused by the divisions among them and they wanted to be united in in their um, advancement of the gospel and there, a synod was held in Bern and basically we had representatives from Zurich. Meginder was the main representative there who interestingly enough some called him the ape of Zwingli. He, he was more Zwinglian than Zwingli was. And from Basel, Myconius had uh, came, uh, from Bern, and this, Bern, early in the Reformation, had been led by some very uh, gracious uh, reformers, but when they died, a man named Kuntz was left as the primary, primary reformer I'd say in Bern and instead of him he was more Lutheran than Luther and he he had and it comes out much more later he, he had a great hatred for the doctors of Geneva he could not stand Pharrell, Veret and um, Calvin even though Pharrell was sent into Geneva by Bern but then Strasbourg you had Busser and Capetto and Geneva sent Pharrell Veran calvin and again this th- this started out with a number of days where they were they were trying to find a place of unity and they just seemed to be getting farther and farther apart they they were they would have different sermons debates they would wrote each catechism, and the other one would tear it apart um uh, both sides are succeeding in nothing but frustrating one another to the point calvin calvin was referred to what had gone on so far as a deadly plague that they were completely unable to find any point of peace they just kept picking at each other but uh calvin eventually stands up and he says if as the scriptures clearly testify The flesh of Christ is meat indeed, and his blood is drink indeed. It follows that if we seek life in Christ, we must be thereby veritably fed. The spiritual life which Christ gives us consists not only in his making us alive by his spirit, but in his rendering us by the power of his spirit partakers of his life-giving flesh, and by means of this participation nourishes us for eternal life. Therefore, When we speak of the communion which the faithful have with Christ, we teach that they receive the communication of the body and his blood, no less than that of his spirit, so they possess Christ wholly. It is true that the Lord has gone up on high, and that his local presence has thus been withdrawn from us, but this fact does not invalidate our assertion, and and that local presence is by no means necessary here. So long as we are pilgrims on earth, we are not contained in the same place with him. But there is no obstacle to the efficacy of the Spirit. He can collect and unite elements existing in far separate places. The Spirit is the means by which we are partakers of Christ. That Spirit nourishes us with flesh and blood of our Lord, and thus quickens us for immortality. Christ offers his communion under the symbols of bread and wine, to all those who celebrate the Supper of Rite in accordance with his institution. After hearing this, Bucer, who, who had been the Lutheran side, says, I embrace his orthodoxist view of our excellent brothers, Calvin, Pharrell, and Varey. I never held that, that Christ was locally present in the Holy Supper. He has a real finite body, and that body remains in the celestial glory. But in raising us by faith to heaven, the bread which we eat and the cup which we drink are for us communication of his body and his blood. Calvin wrote down his view. Bucer appended his words to it. Capetto signed them, and Bucer even succeeded by a dint of moderation and kindness in taming Koontz, and the latter showed, in this instance, some goodwill. And so they all signed this and they all left in an in, in accord with one another. And, uh, and, and it wasn't to be broken. Calvin had made peace and it was a lasting peace among them.
0: Well, thus far, you've given us some um... Uh, Common misconceptions about John Calvin, Uh, you gave us a really uh, interesting story about how Calvin stopped the mouths of the Romists and how uh, some even uh, left Romanism and took up uh, what we would say is Christianity, faith in the one true gospel, or the Christ of the one true gospel. And then now you've given us an example of Calvin as peacemaker, and I'm sure that we could have uh, several more stories together about Calvin and uh, you are invited uh, to have more stories about Calvin in the future. But uh, to wrap up at least this part one of our conversation, uh, do you have any final thoughts about Calvin or any of the other applications that we've been discussing in this uh,
1: conversation? Well, I, I just I think we can learn from him as an excellent example of on the one hand, when you're arguing for the truth of scripture refuse to compromise you yes be kind uh don't don't be you know argumentative in a in a wicked uh and prideful sort of way but when it comes to the word of god what it says is what we must fight for and yet that's when you're arguing with those who are fighting against the 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 true christian faith you, you, that needs to be your attitude but when you're dealing with other christians who yes that one of you is right and one of you is wrong but and what most people at least especially okay you see it most clearly on social media people people aren't trying to understand what the other side is saying building up straw men and tearing them down never does any good to anyone what what calvin was able to do and what we need to how we can try to emulate him is recognizing what is each side really saying and how how can we understand each other and come to uh not not a compromise of the truth but uh, a unity with one another even in when there's times that we can agree to disagree on on certain issues.
2: That is indeed some helpful advice that we can glean from the life of John Calvin, um, one of the men of the Reformed tradition that we often look to not only for uh, theological insight, but encouragement throughout his life. So thank you for uh, taking some time today, Brother Rex, to talk about uh, John Calvin and uh, really appreciate you coming on the show.
1: My pleasure to be here, brothers. And I uh, look forward to um, talking more in the future.
2: And to our listeners, we appreciate you continuing to listen to uh, the Covenant podcast. Uh, we're looking forward to having Rexford back on to discuss more lessons and stories from John Calvin's life. Uh, until that time comes, and until our next episode, we wish you grace and peace.